This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we love to bring you great stories from all of the American experience, love, death, music, sports, arts, history, with our partners at Hillsdale College, and of course, business, where most of us spend most of our days. We spend our days at work, and we especially love to bring you business stories from our American Dreamer series, and they've ranged from Mario Andretti to Don LaFrieda, and everything in between. The daughter of a single mom, by the way, Dawn, who started waiting tables at 10 years of age and by the age of 23 owned her very own restaurant, and now she owns 78 Denny's franchises across the country and started at the minimum wage and built herself up. We love stories like that. They happen every day here in America. And today we bring you another great story, this time with younger entrepreneurs who are still fighting for their peace of the American dream. And their story comes to us from the terrific folks at the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, who offer entrepreneurship classes for schools. Additionally, they offer summer boot camps on entrepreneurship, and they host competitions where young entrepreneurs can pitch their business ideas and win prize money for the launching of their enterprise. And we're now joined by two guys who won the National Youth Entrepreneurship Challenge in 2013, and it's a $25,000 grand prize. Jesus Fernandez and Tohib Okina, who have been friends since high school in the Chicago suburb of South Holland and who now both attend the University of Illinois. Guys, thanks so much for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having us. You bet. And before, yeah, thank you for having us. Oh, please. Thanks for joining us, guys. And before we start, uh, I want to talk to each of you individually about your families and what stirred you to think you wanted to be this thing called an entrepreneur. Not a lot of young people are thinking about owning their own business, particularly at your age. Uh, let's start with you and uh, Jesus. Talk about that for a second. Your early life. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I come from a, um, a low-income immigrant family. My parents uh, immigrated from Mexico when I was younger uh, in search for, for a better future. So, so it has always been a matter of working hard in order to to succeed they've always instilled uh, the importance of a, a a strong work work ethic um so and also going through school i've always known that um what's also very important is that when you do something you love you've you've never have to work a day in your life that's one quote that i've always lived by that has very uh guided me through through life so for example i love uh, soccer, so so the opportunity to be able to combine that w- with business, it, it's it's it can't get any better than that. And that's a smart thing. I mean, doing what you love makes it easy to do what you're doing every day. And obviously, we're going to get into what you did with soccer and the business you made out of soccer in just a little bit. Uh, but uh, Tohib, tell us about you and your your passage uh, to entrepreneurship. Talk about your parents, where you were from. And how you got to this place called entrepreneurship? Sure, Lee. Um, so uh, my parents actually also immigrated from uh, Nigeria. Um, my dad came here earlier, uh, prior to the rest of the family, and then we joined him later in actually 2004. So um, yeah, it's not you know it's been over a decade, but still not that long ago. Um, and I think um, just in general, um, what's been instilled in just my family values is just hard work. <laughs> That's always been a a huge thing. Uh, my dad is a very huge example of that. Uh, my mom as well. So, um, 
I think I just I, I knew I was bound to you know really just uh, um, you know have that type of you know work ethic in me. Um, and when this opportunity uh, presented itself, I've also played soccer all my life, so something something I love and you know really cherish and still do even to this day. Um, and when this opportunity presented itself um, with you know a little bit of coaching and guiding, you know it was it was a no brainer. It's you know uh, entrepreneurship, um, startups, you know engineering, those type of things are you know what gives. Um, I think me and Jesus, you know, life. So, you know, it's 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 it was a no brainer for us to just go and pursue that, and it's been an amazing experience uh, uh, since then, especially through the help of the National uh, Foundation of uh, for Teaching Entrepreneurship. Well, talk to us about your dad, Tohi, because you lost your dad a few years ago, and it was a difficult thing. But how has that propelled you, and how has that motivated you? Um, I think um. You know, one thing, uh, and it's kind of sad, um, you know, losing your dad's not, not easy. Um, and, you know, a lot of times I think to myself, uh, you know, it, it sucks that I am just now kind of understanding how hard you worked um, now, you know, when I'm older and when he's gone. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, my dad was, I always tell people this, he's the hardest worker I've ever seen. Um, he made sure he provided for uh, me and my family made sure schooling was always taken care of and, you know, held high standards for us, um, even though we were immigrants and even though we weren't native to this country. Um, but, you know, uh, losing my dad was um, was tough, but I think that also, um, you know, kind of lit a fire in me. Um, you know, through him, I was able to kind of make some different life choices. Um, really, um, I think uh, through him also, I was able to change in faith also to, um, uh, become a Christian and also to just take stuff seriously, you know, um, I think it really told me, it really showed me that, you know, you know, life is short and, um, you know, you really got to just, um, you know, take it by the horns and really, um, do the most, uh, with what's given. He's always, uh, really instilled in me to whom much is given, much is expected. Um, and I've been presented with a lot of opportunities, um, you know, especially through all the different things that just happened past, you know, five years and, you know, much is expected, so I have to really make much of it. So uh, definitely thank you for my dad for really instilling those type of values in me. Yep, and your dad is still with you. In fact, both of your families are still with you. When we come back, we're going to dig into this business, this business of starting a business, and these young people who decided to do it. My goodness, this is the only thing that saves the country. Whatever the discussions are out there politically, if we don't start and grow new businesses, where are the jobs and then where do the taxes come from? When we come back... Jesus Fernandez and Tohib Okenla, founders of T&J Soccer. It's a great American story. Immigrants from Mexico, immigrant family from Nigeria, came here with nothing and are living the American dream. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we return to our American Dreamers segment. We're joined by Jesus Fernandez and Tohib Okenla, founders of TNJ Soccer. And they won the $25,000 grand prize for their business proposal at the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship's National Youth Entrepreneurship Challenge in 2013. And before we dig into that, we wanted to talk to Jesus. We had heard a bit about uh, the Tohib's father and how his work ethic was instilled in him, and he lost his dad. Jesus, tell us about what your family did in Mexico and what happened here, and talk about the values your your family instilled in you. Yeah, absolutely. So my parents uh, immigrated to uh, the United States uh, well before I was born, and and uh, we moved in, uh, into California. So I was born and raised in California, and they worked in the in the fields. So they so they were picking strawberries, and it was a t- I mean it's a tough it's a tough job uh, with standing heat. Um, trying to cover yourself from 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 the sun to not get sunburned, and it's just constant. It's, it's very very tough tough labor. So so seeing them just go through that every single day just to provide for for me and my family. Now I come from a from a very big family. Um, I have three older sisters, a younger brother. I have nine nephews and three nieces. Wow. So it's a, it's a, it's it's a it's a pretty big family, and um. I'm I'm the first one uh, uh, to to go to college. So, but what's behind that, and, and I can't thank uh, enough, is, is it's my parents. They've they've not only displayed that 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 hard that hard work, but they they've shown like completely relentlessness and 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 not giving up, which is what it's all about. Because uh, you can never lose hope, and that's something that has been um, um, just instilled in me. Through my family, um, after California, we then moved to we made that that move to Illinois, and my mom in the field she she got injured, so so she got dislocated and she no longer works. So so now having my dad be the only one to provide for for my family, it's 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 all very like motivating because first of all, I want to be able to to lead an example, be a role model to to other. My little siblings that I have, nephews, nieces, especially my little brother, to show them that it is possible to to go to college and and even start your own business and, and just pursue what you love, uh, regardless of, of anything. And and that's something that that very that motivates me a lot, especially just trying to give that that life to, just try to give as much back to my parents. Um, I, it, it must be hard uh, losing your father, which is which is something till he went through, but. Even though he is, it's 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 an inspiration the way he 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 goes through 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 life and, and everything he has accomplished so far. So so in overall, it's it's all about uh, in me is just about not giving up and and continue to 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 wake up and and, and work hard every day because it is possible. Yeah, and and, 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 and I feel like I have that responsibility to to show my my little nephews and. And you bet. And and hard work is at the core of everything. And you're a lu- you're a lucky guys to have had that instilled in you because there's nothing more a parent can do than do what they did for both of you. Because if you don't have that, you're doomed in in life. No matter what your status, no matter your class, what what your class. And by the way, if you guys go ahead and make good, you know, don't let your kids get off easy. I mean, you know, a lot of people do that. They work hard. They get some. They they accomplish some things monetarily, and then they tell their kids not to work. 
it's sort of crazy, which brings us to our, our next question. First jobs. We love pe- talking to people about what that first job was and what they learned yeah. from it. And Tahib, you first. What was your first job and what did you learn from it? That's funny. Uh, so first of all, yeah, like my kids definitely aren't getting off easy. <laughs> easy. Um, <laughs> but um, my first job, my first job was actually um, cutting cutting grass. Uh, I think it was my sophomore year of high school, uh, summer. I think that was when, you know, uh, I, I I gained the trust of my parents to be able to, you know, get good grades and also, you know, add extracurriculars. Um, so we, um, I worked for my township and essentially it was, um, we, we cut grass for senior citizen, citizens of our um, neighborhood. And um, it, it was, it was tough. That was probably the closest I've gotten to manual labor. And it was a, it was a rough summer. Um, so we would, you know, be up at like 6 a.m. every morning. It was kind of like a first come, first serve type of thing. So, you know, the early you cut, wake up, you know, the more lawns you get. And um, we got paid $5 a lawn. And, you know, if you want to make $100 that day, you know, you'd be having to cut 25 lawns. So we'd, you know, regularly go through 25, 30 lawns, you know, 6 to like like 7 p.m. type of 13-hour days, you know. And we we would have made like, you know, maybe two hundred dollars. Which is it was good back then, you know, as a high school sophomore, that was a, that was a lot. But yeah, I mean, I, after that summer, like, you know, I, I had to like learn how to, you know, pick things up properly because we'd have to unload and reload the the truck and my back was just like <laughs> took a lot of hit. Um but I think through that, yeah, I was able to learn how to work hard. <laughs> I think that was just kinda uh, uh, a a common or like a part of the process of learning, you know what it is to, you know, just wake up early and get things done, or you know, you know, stuff sucks, but you know, just got to get through it because the means might not um, be very pretty, but the end is, you know, the end is worth it. So I think it would just allow me to be able to see a clearer end, even if it is just a hundred dollars or two hundred dollars. Um, I think that benefits me a lot now while I'm in school. You know, I try to wake up every day at six a.m. You know, my church has a morning prayer type of thing. So 6 a.m. every day I'm up. By 7.30, I'm, my day started, you know, doing things I need to do. And, you know, got to sleep early because I got to wake up the next day at 6. So, you know, 11, 11.30, I'm in bed. Um, and I think I can date that all the way back to, you know, high school, that first job. <laughs> well, that's great. And Jesus, your first job, and what do you remember about it? <laughs> my first job. So I, I've I love the sport of soccer, so I've always, throughout my life, tried to stay close to it. Um, if it's not as a soccer player, it's as a coach or something else. But my first job was uh, a soccer referee. Now, that job turned out to be a lot tougher than I expected. So I thought I was just going to, you know, call some rules and, 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 and just watch some soccer. But, right. wow. Being a soccer referee and, and the moment you have all the parents yell at you and, and all the coaches just screaming because it's so competitive and you make a call and one team likes it, the other team doesn't. And it's just like, man, what, what do I do? And it's just trying not to take uh, anything personal at all. And um, you know, all, the, all the critique and, and you're a terrible ref, you're horrible. That was a foul. I'm just like, wow, like. Like it's just me. I don't have eyes behind my back. I couldn't see everything. So it was it, it was a lot tougher than I expected. It, yep. It's a job that requires you to have like a like have like a like a thick skin. Just just knowing that you're not gonna make everybody happy with with what you do. It's 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 just a matter of doing the the right thing that that you think is the right thing. But 
that's something that I was able to learn a lot from just in general, just going through all the, the critique and um, um, having people just be not uh, uh, satisfied with your cause. And, and just, it made me really like know like the value of money too. Just knowing like, wow, stuff is not easy. And, 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 and yeah, it was a, it was a fun time. I refereed for uh, three, three to four years. And then I, I became a, a youth soccer coach, just teaching little kids how to play soccer, U8, U9. It was very, very fun. Just seeing the the the, the passion in, in the eyes of these little kids just trying to play. So so that's something that I also worked on. And now um, here, I mean, I'm currently just working remotely for our company, just doing some web design. But But, yeah, I mean, first job was a soccer referee. Well, that's great. And when we come back, we're going to talk about that first business, guys. And by the way, uh, when I was a freshman in high school, I was asked to referee the 6th, 7th, and 8th grade local Catholic league. And I didn't know just how excited parents got. And I faced the same thing. And by the way, especially when you're doing an away game and you got to call the, you got to call the foul against the home team. Uh, or the away oh, team yeah. at a home game. It's just so painful. And I got to tell you, I learned a lot then. You just got to call them how you see them. They're exactly. never going to like you. And it's really exactly. hard work. You're as tired as the athletes. When that game is <laughs> over, you are running that court, and you don't get to have a substitute. When we come back, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, and we love talking to American Dreamers. And we've never talked to two this young, Jesus Fernandez and Tohib Okenla. And by the way, they just happened to have won a really nice prize from the National Youth Entrepreneurship Challenge back in 2013, and it was a $25,000 prize for their business idea. When we come back, we're going to dig into that idea here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Jesus Fernandez and Tohi Bokenla. This is our American Dreamers series. So guys, you've known each other since middle school, as I learned during the break, and now you're in high school together, and you stumble on a class. By the way, the curriculum for this class was provided by the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship. Tell us about this class. Tell us what happens. Yeah, so... um we uh, actually, it's a very funny story. <laughs> um, so it was my senior year, uh, Jesus' um, junior year, and I was looking, you know, senior year, you got a little bit senior senioritis, you're just trying to graduate. So I was just looking for, you know, the most kind of intuitive courses I can take. So I'm like, okay, it's a business course. Business is pretty, you know, business is, you know, business. So um, I took that class, and Jesus ended up taking that class too, Um and we were actually in different different sections, but we played on a soccer team together. So we're like, um, the, the challenge of the class, hey, come up with a business plan. That's the whole, you know, curriculum, kind of like what we actually do here in college. You know, the curriculum is come up with a business plan for a business. So, you know, we get like this uh, one-week period where we just think of an idea, you know, just you know, go through your day, think of the idea. 
you know, we meet at practice, me and Jesus, we're like, oh, yeah, you're in that class too, right, man? Yeah, what's your idea? Man, I don't know, man. Um, no. Uh, you know, we just, we'll, we'll, we'll think of something, or I'll think of something. Okay, I'll think of something. And then we went together, we went through practice, and I think about, like, the third day or third practice, we're like, you know, what's kind of annoying, um, our teammates were complaining, you know, what's really annoying is that we hate, you know, when the shin guards, you know, are just never stable. But then I hate wearing my straps and sleeves, and also with, with high school soccer, like, you, your straps have to be the same color as your sock. And we were a purple, you know, our, our team colors were purple. You know, we can't find purple Nike socks anywhere. And what if your team color is yellow or pink? Or, you know what I mean? So it was just really a hassle. Um, so we're like, me and Jesus should get a light bulb in your head. Like, okay, this might be something. So we actually go to the teacher and say, hey, I know he's in a different section, but could we work together on our business? Um, reluctantly, I think, uh, like, okay, yeah, sure, we can make it work. You guys are good students and so on and so forth. So the idea, you know, it was just kind of an idea at first, but then, you know, our teacher kind of saw something in us uh, along with, you know, the Nifty system. They saw something in us that, you know, they don't, they didn't normally see. So they actually did a lot of work in, into pushing us, you know. Uh, I was just trying to graduate. Jesus, you know, we should take a class. And they were like, hey, you know, this is a good idea. I'm like, yeah, it's a good idea. But, you know, uh, we, you know, just being young, we didn't, you know, see like, okay, wow, this can turn into, you know, what, what it is now. Um, but then, you know, lo and behold, they pushed us a little bit more. We went and got some material. Jesus's mom came in clutch and uh, really just, you know, sold up our first prototype. We showed it to, um, yeah, we showed it to the teacher. He's like, "This is amazing." We showed it to his Nifty correspondent. This is amazing. And then from then on, we're like, "Okay, we're fully for it." We went to compete in the um, Chicago um, competition. Killed that first place, got the first place prize. We're like, whoa, whoa, that's amazing. And then we went to regionals, killed that first place. And then we went to, um, I think we went to one more before we went to nationals, killed that first place as well. And all of these were getting prizes to go along with it. And then we went to nationals. And, um, you know, a lot of stuff happened to nationals, but we ended up killing that too, first place. Um, and, you know, that's how, you know, we got the prize money. We got all the networking all that stuff, and that just launched our business to, you know, essentially the what it is now. We've done a lot of work on it, but, you know, essentially that's the background foundation of what our business is now. And when you made the pitch, I mean, folks on this show know Shark Tank, because, heck, we play a lot of the segments from Shark Tank, because I think it's important for people to at least have some notional idea of how a company's evaluated, what a pitch sounds like, who investors are and why you got to give up some of your equity in your business for uh, some of the percentage of your business for some money from someone who has money to give. And it's just interesting that people at least get an introduction into it. Who, who pitched this? Did you guys pitch this together? And what was your pitch, guys? In a short amount of time, our audience is listening. What was your pitch? What were you telling people you were selling? Sell us. Um, so so we, we pitched this together. Uh, very cool pitch, I think. There's a lot of videos of us out there. Maybe we can link it with this uh, interview. But um, basically came in, hey, soccer is the most popular sport in the world. And if you're a soccer player, um, you know this. Um, but, you know, one irritating thing is that uh, when your shin guard slides out of place um, and leaving your shin bone, the most commonly fractured long bone in your body, exposed, it's not fun. This can get, take you out the game and also cause injury, which is essentially the ultimate impediment to becoming greater. So, and then we would continue hope, but with our product, uh, worry no more because we have the perfect solution. And then we do this fits bump thing. Hey, I'm Toby Bokemla, and Jesus will go, hey, I'm Jesus Fernandez, and we are TNJ Soccer. 
And then we just break it down from financials. Okay, this is how much it'll cost, or this is the problem actually. This is the solution. This is the current market solutions, and this is why our solutions are better. Here are the finances.、Um, here's what it takes to start it up.、Um, here's what we need for backup,、um, and then here's what we plan our、uh, our future goal ahead. Our、um, basically our vision. We cast it for the audience,、uh, for the、uh, judges, and it's just like Shark Tank. Actually, it's, it's no different. A lot of people tell us to go and check Shark Tank. And we're like we've we've done it, you know, four, five, six times actually. Yep.、Um, they we'd pitch it to them, and then they would just drill us with questions. You know, okay, if if I want to order, you know, fifteen thousand pairs of this right now, how would you guys get it done? Or you know, what would stop Nike from、uh, stealing this product right now? You know, those things. And we'd have to, you know, really、um, answer those questions with eloquence, with、uh, a lot of factual、um, things, and with honesty too. If Nike were trying to steal this product, they would just steal it, right? But We were open to synonymize our name with the product, so on and so forth, and you know it really gave the、um, judges a lot of faith, and、um, you know, and I think that's really because of our confidence and just the way we knew our business.、Um, the judges really bought in, and it really helped us to you know win these challenges. And by the way, you guys did approach Major League Soccer,、um, and you've you've had some ups and some downs, and some successes and and some setbacks. And by the way, that's everybody in business. Talk about what happened when you went to see Major League Soccer.、Uh, Jesus, you, yeah, you want to handle so, that?、Uh, so we we had we got the opportunity to、uh, meet with、uh, the CEO of、uh, Chicago Fire, and was able to show our product to them, and 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 it was a great opportunity to be able to have they they were able to bring,、uh, bring in、uh, some professional soccer、uh, players from the team. So they see the sock and 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 they love it. I mean, they love the the concept.、Uh, and we were able to get feedback such as, "Yo, maybe uh, uh, this could be a little bit of lighter material in general." But but I mean, those are, those are minor things that can easily be fixed. What was important to us was 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 seeing, "Yo, does the concept work? Does it have potential?" And and, and we were able to receive very promising uh, uh, feedback and, and and very positive that that was able to like、uh, feel. Feel us, and, and and now, right now, we're currently、um, trying to push our first order out there and get the product out there, and 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 make、uh, modifications. And we're already working on the second version of the sock, and it's to try to、uh, get the best product possible. Yeah, and kind of to backtrack on, you know, that was more that was a little bit more positive. You know, we got you know some exposure in that end, but. Uh, a little bit more on the downs of business. Again, you said it's part of business.、Um, uh, it was tough. So we、um, even just、uh, you know, Jesus made it sound easy. Okay, our first you know our first order, but to get that first order was ridiculously hard. That was one of the hardest things I've you know, ever done in my life. Trying to、um, you know、uh, contact a manufacturer. We first fielded almost every single manufacturing option in the、oh, United States. We reached out.、Um, we reached out to over sixty manufacturers, and, and it was a it was a bumpy road because either one they wouldn't take us serious, or number two, they didn't have a minimum order quantity that would work for us. So, so getting getting the manufacturer was was tough. Yeah, and then along with that,、um, we were in talks with the manufacturer.、Uh, I think actually a couple connections linked us to it. Okay, this works. Okay, this works. We're almost about、um, finishing with the prototype, and then they're like, "Honestly, again, the minimal order quantity thing." Because we're a small business, so we're not ordering thirty-five thousand from you, right?、Um, they go, "Honestly, we just can't handle this this small of a capacity、um, because you know we were having to modify this." So last minute, <laughs> manufacturer would bail on us, 
and then we have to migrate all of our products, all of the schemas, all of the designs to a new manufacturer. Well, hold that thought, guys, because when we come back in our final segment with you two, we're going to talk about other problems, other successes, opportunities, what it's like to be an entrepreneur in college. Is there time for dating? This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Our American Dreamers segment with our two youngest American dreamers so far, Jesus Fernandez and Tohib Okenla, founders of TNJ Soccer. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories, and we're back with the final portion of our hour-long conversation with Jesus Fernandez and Tohib Okelna, University of Illinois students and the founders of TNJ Soccer, the best soccer sock out there. You can learn more about their sock and buy it at tnjs.co. In last segment, we left off talking about their struggle to find someone to make their sock. On this manufacturing problem, we see it on Shark Tank a lot, where the, the person will say, you know, right now it costs us $3 to make the product, and we could get it made in, you know, China for $1.50, but we'd have to order 50000 and the manufacturer is saying, well, you know, if you don't have the money, then we can't do the business. So very often, people are going to the Shark Tank for money so they can lower their price, so they can actually increase the size and scale of their business. Where were you caught? Where were you guys stuck in the process? And what did you learn from that? So he... Yeah, so, yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, that, I think that's a, the proverbial entrepreneurial problem that you face all the time. You need a lot, but don't have money. Um, but the people want you to buy a lot, and that costs a lot of money. Um, so we, we actually got stuck um, in the, uh, at the, as I was explaining, the... Uh, getting the uh, right manufacturer to give us a small minimum order quantity and, um, you know, addressing the downs again of the business. Um, you know, this took us quite a, took a hit on us. It took us, again, we won the uh, competition in, in 2013 and we, um, you know, and we kind of, you know, launched it and we're, okay, yeah, let's just make this stuff. My freshman year, I was like, yeah, let's do this. I don't, I don't care. We'll, you know, we'll handle school too. And then, you know, manufacturer built out on us. We have to find another one. Um, finding a manufacturer isn't hard, but finding one with such a low minimal order quantity was tough. And, um, and I think on that search um, was when, uh, uh, or what, uh, searching and finding uh, that right manufacturer uh, almost actually, you know, took us out of a tailspin because, um, you know, we're, we're dealing with school. We're trying to, you know, get our grades. You know, we still have to be great students as well, um, you know, as, as long as, as, with regards to credibility and, you know, that kind of, you know, made the business die down a lot. Um, but I think that's why it's really good to um, have uh, a partner, but not only just a partner, but someone you're, you're so close with and you've known for a while because, you know, when someone's, you know, just having such a tough time, the other one can really just uh, help rouse the other person up. And that's, you know, that's been the, the cycle, um, honestly, for the past four years. It's, you know, I'm not feeling it, whether it's, you know, school's tough or family stuff. And Jesus, you know, will pick up slack and really – push it and, you know, show me like, bro, this is worth it. And, you know, I can, I do that vice versa as well whenever it gets tough for him. And we've just developed such a great chemistry. So, so with the manufacturer able to find one um, eventually, um, and then honestly, it was just a race to raise the money. You know, we worked, (laughs) 
we worked uh, put up a, a lot of our money and um you know, I think uh, we would be we uh, skimmed from our families as well, you know, because they really want us to get this too. So working and family backing and stuff, we're able to get our first order with actually a lot. Um, it was a large quantity. The cost was ridiculous again because it was a relatively small quantity. Um, uh, but you know that that really um, there was that really that trough that down part that um, we really had to go through. And now I think we're looking on the up and up. Uh, things are very good. We're at, we're getting investor interest, and you know we're just trying to secure teams and and all these different things. So. Uh, there's a different set of problems that we have to face now, but I think at least that last one is, you know, over with. Hey, Zeus, which one of you guys is the sales guy? You know, in Shark Tank, you know, you always got Cuban going, where are the sales? Or, or, or Mr. Wonderful, where are the sales? Who's the sales guy <laughs> here? And you've ordered a, a, a thousand pair. Who's selling them and how many have you sold so far? And how, how are you doing on that front, guys? Hey, Zeus? No, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so out of a, um, we we've both been been going uh, and and selling. I mean, we're currently in school, and uh, I normally try to go home every other weekend and just con- contacting coaches. I mean, as a soccer, I used to be a soccer free, which that actually that first job helped me now as as being able to con- uh, have those those connections with other soccer coaches. So I'll just email them and reach out to them and show them the product. So. Every other weekend, I'll go home and, and arrange meetings to try to meet with these coaches and show the product and go to soccer domes and just, just word of mouth, word of mouth. And, and Tohib has done the same. And that's why uh, things, have, things have worked, that, that, that teamwork that, that I'm going this weekend. And if one of us has other stuff, if the other one is, 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 is pushing it. So just it, overall reaching to coaches. You're just talking to the coaches. And, Tohib, uh, what, are you, what is it costing you to make these socks, and what are you selling them for? Um, so right now our, co- our, our socks are priced at $20, um, and uh, that, that's for various reasons, um, but also it's because of the cost, um, the cost right now, are ranging around 5 to, like, 7 bucks, um, which is ridiculous. That's ridiculously high, but that's because of our, <laughs> our ridiculously low minimum order quantity. Um, our price, our costs can easily go down, but again, we need that investment, that uh, initial insertion of um, funds. Uh, but um, we also, you know, we're pricing it at twenty dollars because our socks are are great socks, right? They're not, they're not cheap socks. They're not. They're. Um, we try to have as good or better quality than than the best Nike socks you find on the market, the best Adidas socks you find on the market. So we we don't sell bad socks, right? Um, so that. You know, exclusivity type of um, very nice uh, quality, uh, along with our high cost, is what's um, pushing it towards the twenty dollar barrier. Um, but then again, we as, as we scale, hopefully, um, as you know, our production scale, then uh, we're able to you know uh, minimize cost, and hopefully, we can drop that price um, to be to be a little bit lower. But again, not up to where we're devaluing um, the quality and the uh, of the product. Right? You bet. Keeping yeah. your keeping your brand strong. Uh, but trying to make more money, uh, or at least lowering the cost to your sellers or your your wholesalers, and and ultimately the retailers and the customers and the people who buy these socks. Hey guys, what about exactly. Jesus? To dating life, you know, you're in you're in school, you're working hard, and then you got this business, and you're working hard to sell the clothes. How do you sell yourself to the to that Mrs. Wright? Do you have time for that? <laughs> oh man, well it it, it does. Take a lot of time just just going to classes and, and, and trying to sell socks. You know, I mean, trying to sell socks every day. Um, but I mean, there's 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 time for everything too. <laughs> but uh, 
but yeah, I mean, you, the, the the focus though, the the main thing is just tr- trying to stay focused. The, the, that that time will will also come, and it's just a matter of uh, just just trying to trying to stay grounded. Just just knowing that yes, but just avoid unnecessary distractions too yeah well you know you're keeping your head down you're working hard and if uh, if the light lady comes around great but you're trying to stay Absolutely. out of trouble you're trying to keep focus and let me tell you you'll stay out of a lot of trouble when you're as busy as you are tahib what about you is there a mrs right in your life right now tahib um absolutely not um i uh, <laughs> uh i just just the type of person i am um I can only do like, you know, four things at a time very well. And, you know, I think my mom always tells me anything that's worth doing at all is worth doing well. So I think I know my capacity as for now, but I'm graduating soon. Um, I think uh, just in general, also my kind of stance is that, um, again, for me, just my my Christian values is that, you know, I want to just handle what I need to handle first. um, um, And then maybe I'll figure out, you know, and if I'm going to date someone is to marry them. Right. So I'm not, you know, in that mindset yet. So that's just kind of not in my radar right now. (laughs) Well, good for you. And, uh, and, and men who have daughters right now would like to hear that. Uh, Tahib, that's that's nice. Uh, last thought here for both of you. Jesus, first, and just quickly, if you could, what has the network for teaching entrepreneurship meant to your lives? And what would you say to a student or a school administrator listening right now? Oh, the the National Foundation of Entrepreneurship, NIFTI, which is their abbreviations, has really changed our lives. I, I believe I can speak for both of us, but but it has really changed my life. Just um in general, that, that support, that learning about business, and, I mean, just overall encouraging and showing that it is possible for, for someone to start a business. I mean, there's many people out there that might have an idea uh, and just don't have the resources and, and, and don't, have, don't know where to go. You know, there's, there's, there's a million of great ideas out there, and it's just a matter of, of trying to execute and, and meeting that right person to guide you. So if I would speak to a school administrator, it's, it's, it's definitely tried and, and and offer this course and offer that support to to young entrepreneurs and 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 that spirit of yo um, there's a million problems out there and, and, and just a matter of coming up with your idea and knowing that you can push it through and 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 helping with that those resources and and pointing them to the right direction because everybody deserves to 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 achieve forward and Tahib, the same question to you what would you have to say to a parent or a teacher about the network for teaching entrepreneurship? Uh, I'd say three words, uh, network, 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 uh, network. Uh, I think uh, they're just, they've been, you know, an amazing support. I think they've offered a majority of the things um, that got us started and is keeping us going. It's coming and stemmed from them. So um, honestly, if an administrator doesn't have this, you know, system in their school already, it's not, I, I, do it <laughs> now because um, entrepreneurship is, it's the future, um, and and I think Nifty has got a head start on it. Thank you both. Jesus Fernandez, Tohibo Kenla, founders of TNJ Soccer, and winners of a $25,000 grand prize in 2013 from the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship. And you can find their business, both of these guys, and purchase their great innovative socks at tjns.co. This is Our American Story.
This is Our American Stories. I'm Jesse Edwards. Recently, I had the chance to speak with a man who goes by the name of Creed Bratton. You might know him from NBC's hit television series, The Office, where he plays a character with the same name. But being on television wasn't his only brush with fame, as you'll hear in this conversation. We talk about his life before and after The Office in this interview. Hi, this is Jesse. Hey, Jesse. Creed Bratton here. How are you doing, buddy? <laughs> Creed, doing great. Yourself? I'm well. I'm well, man. One, two, three. This is Creed, and he is in charge of something, that right? That is correct. Say hi to the kids. Hi, kids. Yay. You ever seen a foot with four toes? Yeah. What are you doing? Stop it. Stop it. Just no, 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 no. Would you cut it out? Every time that I fall, I also fly. The song you're listening to is called Move to Win, performed by singer-songwriter and actor-comic Creed Bratton and his band The Rubbermen from his album audio biography, Tell Me About It. Creed Bratton, he's a really interesting character with a fascinating life story to tell. He was the founding member from the 1960s rock group The Grassroots and most recently famous for playing the character on NBC's hit television series The Office. You've got to move to win. Creed. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jesse. Thanks for having me, man. Full disclosure, before we get started here, I'm such a big fan of The Office. It plays on a constant loop in my house with my family. I, last year alone, <laughs> I, I watched the thing nine times from beginning, middle, to end. I've already seen it once this year. So let me just get that out of the way before we get started. Wow. You're, you're the one that keeps doing it. I, no, I, we, I have a, a very young uh, following now with college, and they... And they tell me it's, it's Netflix. That's the reason that they're, uh, they're discovering this show. And it, what, who, knew, who knew? Back in the day, that didn't happen. You know, you got a one shot at it, and uh, they could buy your album or something like that. But that was it. <laughs> now, they just they, this, this phenomenon is occurring. It's pretty amazing. But before we get to that, I wanted to see if we could talk uh, about your, your life and your early life and how you got started from the very beginning. Uh, you were born in 1943, mm-hmm. and you grew up uh, near Yosemite Valley, California, and your, your father died right. serving in World War II when you were just two years old. That's correct, when I was two years old, yep. Uh-huh. Did you learn anything yeah. about him? I knew that he was, uh, he was a lieutenant colonel. He had the rank of lieutenant colonel. He was one of these guys. He, he was a, a liaison working with Northrop Aircraft. He was a military, but it was one of these situations where he worked as an adjunct, you know, with the with with Northrop too. And he would go up in the planes, wow. in the, all their planes, and he would sit there or fly them or whatever, uh, depending on what he needed to do that day, and listen to the engines and listen to the struts and stuff. And he could tell you exactly. He, he built his own plane. I found out. Wow. With my with my uncle, and so he had this amazing ear that he could hear hear stuff. And, uh, and unfortunately he, he went, uh, he was told this, he one day when we go up in this plane, uh, called the black widow, there you go. <laughs> and, uh, it was, it, this was in Hawaii and, uh, he had a really bad feeling about it. He told everyone he really didn't want to do it. And they said, well, you know, this is your job. And he said, okay, but I just don't like the sound of this plane. And he got in it went up and it crashed on takeoff. And oh, that wow. was that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? Uh, did a lot of crazy. I had a lot of trauma as a child, and I think that has a lot to do with. Uh, you hear of this a lot with artists, and you, you either sink or swim, and you become more creative, and you rise above it, or you you fall into oblivion. You know, and that's I chose the former. 
So your, your mother remarried, and you were forced to take a new last name, and you were surrounded yeah. by your, your grandparents would play music. They were in a band, and you were surrounded by music, basically, as a, as a, as a kid. Can you tell us how that right. began to influence your musical career? Well, I mean, I would go down in the summers and spend the summers in Long Beach, California, with, with my grandparents, and they had a semi-professional country western band, western swing band called the Happy Timers. I put them uh, on the cover of my Course Gold album, the, the band, and uh, they, I would sit there and fall asleep at night behind one of these amps. I hear all the uh, uh, those songs from the '40s and '50s. In the class, I hear a lot of classical country songs and standards and stuff, and I loved it. And I and I just I played trumpet mm-hmm. starting like at a very young age, and uh, I was quite good at that. I was it was a naturalist that the teachers told me. But at 13, my grandfather started showing me some chords. And then I was able to listen by ear on the radio and uh, hear the hear the chords and progressions, figure it out. What was your first guitar? Was, the first guitar I had was a silver tone guitar that I I bought with my own money. And of course, we didn't we didn't have any money up there, so I I had no allowance per se. Never, never no one gave me. I just had to go and do it. No one <laughs> gave me a thing, Jesse. I worked <laughs> for everything. <laughs> So, but anyway, I uh, I set away for the in the series we call it the wish book. You sit there and you stare at this. That was it. That was your big uh, uh, connection with the great out the great world out there. Was the Sears and Roebuck catalog. I saw this Silvertone guitar. I was made by Dan Electro, and it came. And I'm telling you, I I pulled it out of its case and pulled it out, and the the cord the cord came with it, and it plugged. You plugged the the, the case was the amplifier. There was a speaker in the uh, guitar case. <laughs> so you'd open up the case, pull out the guitar, plug in the case, plug your guitar into the case, and you play through the speaker and an amplifier in the, in the cover of the case. And that was your, uh, that's how you play. And I just played that thing out in the barn with the chickens and the, and the, the cattle, the steer we had there and everything we had around the place. And for just a couple of years, solid. Mm-hmm. Until about 17, I started playing professionally. This is Our American Stories, and we're talking with Creed Bratton, who starred in NBC's head television series, The Office. For the next few segments, we'll be talking with him about his life, his professional music career, and his time on The Office. And this is one of Creed's songs called Spinning and Reeling. We'll be right back with more from Creed Bratton. This is Our American Stories. Everybody knows I'm crazy about you. Just can't stop thinking about I love, I love I thought I'd never see a reason to feel But here I stand, spinning and reeling with love Spinning and reeling with love, whoa I remember how strong I felt As I drove to work that day 
Welcome back to Our American Stories. I'm Jesse Edwards. We're talking with Creed Bratton from NBC's hit television series The Office that ran for nine seasons. Creed is also an accomplished musician who is a founding member of the 1960s group The Grassroots, who had a number of top hits. The song you're hearing now is one from Creed's solo career called Unemployment Line. The beat you right down to the ground in unemployment line. The only difference between me and a homeless man is this job. I will do whatever it takes to survive, like I did when I was a homeless man. So, Creed, can you tell us about your first job growing up? Oh, gosh, yes. I worked as a paper boy down in Fresno, uh, delivering the papers. I worked as a milk cows. I dug post holes. Uh, I shot <laughs> squirrels for ranchers and stuff. Sure. Uh, I... Uh, Worked as a dude wrangler for the place called Johnny Jones Pack Train. We take people, uh, dudes, take the dudes back in the high country, and we'd ride them way back in there and set them up. And then I'd, I'd take the all the the mules and stuff, pack everything up, and head back to the camp, take us the next day or the next couple of days. And I was so tired. I was 15 years old when I was doing that. I, I, a couple of times I fell off the the, the horse or the mule, whatever I was riding that day. <laughs> and you just be through the creek or whatever, blah, 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 and get up because you were young and resilient. So, I mean, I had, uh, I had all kinds of different In college, I, uh, I had a swim scholarship and a water polo scholarship, but I'd go through class and then I'd go straight over and I'd go right to work cleaning, cleaning the blackboards, sweeping up the school. And that's how I got through college doing that. You know, so I was never not working. It's just, it was work, work, but that's all I ever knew. Sure. After college, yeah. you set out to see the world. You and a friend hitched a ride from California to New Orleans to board uh-huh. a cargo ship bound for Venice, Italy. And after 20 day, right. 28 days at sea with only $25 in your pocket, you started hitchhiking around Europe. Tell us where that adventure took you. Well, uh, my friend Mickey, uh, he... He got first. He heard his girlfriend talking to a guy on the. He got one phone call. We were up in Copenhagen, and we didn't. Because I, the first night we were there, uh, he and I got drunk on wine with these people because I didn't have a guitar <laughs> with me. And these people had a guitar. I picked up the guitar and started playing. They all went, "Hey, it's great!" So we <laughs> ran around saying La Bamba, and, and I woke up the next morning in St. Mark's Square covered with pigeon. <laughs> had it all over my head, face, and hair. And body, and then and he, we just looked at each other, and started laughing, and it was great. <laughs> anyway, uh, he heard this his his girlfriend's voice talking to a talking to a guy, and he freaked out, and he asked his parents to send. Now I had paid his way over because I didn't want to go by myself. I had in college, I had I'd worked and worked and worked. As I told you, I played in bands, so I'd saved my money. I'd bought an Austin Healey sports car. It was my that was the pride nice. of my life, except my guitar. I sold that because I I was in drama major and I said I've got to get out of here I, I just see that this life's taking me nowhere I need something to change and also my little voice said you should go to Europe <laughs> go to Europe I actually had a drama coach tell me I need life experiences so one thing led I said come on Mickey go with me I said I'll pay your way and I'm gonna sell my car he said you're selling your car I said I'm selling my car and I sold the car it was the best thing I ever did in my life because I ended up there so anyway, he flew home. So I, I went, I hitchhiked. I didn't hitchhike then. I stowed away on, on uh, uh, trains. Wow. I hid and take one step ahead of the, the, uh, the, 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 what would be called the guy who just walked around trying to bowl and <laughs> trying to get you off the, these trains <laughs> and stuff, you know. But I managed to do it because I was a good actor. So yeah. I was able to act like I belonged there many, many times. 
And uh, I got down, I got a job in Munich, and then I met these two guys that were going off to Africa. Uh, and I joined them. We call ourselves the Young Californians. And I spent the next about the next two years traveling all over Europe, uh, Africa, Middle East, up into Scandinavia, red curtain countries. Just went on and on. 145 at 145 pounds. I, I wow. went there with 200 pounds. Went back at 145. <laughs> I was I was starving to death, basically. Yeah. Uh, and you eventually uh, you changed your name to Creed Bratton, and you returned to the U.S. and you you right. met up with a group called the Thirteenth Floor, which would later go on to become the Grassroots. No, I started I started the Thirteenth with my friend Warren Etner, who I met in Israel. I was working playing a folk festival there, and he came up to me and liked what I was doing, and uh, I liked Warren, and uh, uh, we went to a party, went to a house, and played a little together, and I and I liked him, and so I put he took his number, and I called him when I got to L.A. This is my first time in Los Angeles since I had been I had been born there, and I had of course I'd been down to Long Beach, but I'd never been to L.A. per se or Hollywood. So I called him with what well, soon as I got there. In one week, my girlfriend Joanna at the time got us a job uh, playing the strip bar, and uh, that was how we started the Thirteenth Floor. We played for a year, worked ourselves up on the Sunset Strip at a place called the London Fog, and then we got a chance to become yes, the grassroots. First song uh, that we recorded with them was "Lift," uh, excuse me, "Beating Around the Bush" that Warren and I wrote. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was our demo, and the next song was "Live for Today." He and I played on that with uh, Al Blaine and a buddy of mine named Bobby Ray. Yeah, let's listen to that just for a minute. Uh, this is "Live for Today," featuring our guest Creed Bratton and his band, The Grassroots, from 1967. Complicate their minds by chasing after money and dreams that can't come true. I'm glad that we are different. We've better things to do. Let others plan their future. I'm busy loving you. One, two, three, four. This song jumped the charts back in the 1960s to number five. What was that newfound success like for you? Well, it was pretty amazing. You know, I had, I remember driving down Sunset Strip, feeling pretty darn good. We were, we were you know, and I heard one of our songs come on the radio. And it just, all of a sudden, I pulled over to the side of the road and just sit there for a while. I kept punching stations. I heard it on three or four different stations. And I'm sitting there going, my life, this little voice said again, your life will never be the same. And it hasn't been. You know, so that was it. Boom. Open the doors. Open the portal. So then after the grassroots, you kind of faded away from that, and you started working in Hollywood. You started taking some professional uh, acting courses, and uh, right. you, you went on to, to appear in several major motion pictures, working behind the scenes in Hollywood. And years later, you ended up working on uh, with Bernie Mac, and you had a friend who was going to direct The Office. Tell us about that time in your life and how you got to become part of that show. Okay, well, I had uh, uh, my buddy Joe Moore, uh, who's a fishing buddy of mine, who I used to travel with, you know, uh, I met him on a Disney film and got friends with him and his father, who was a major director in, in Hollywood. And we all got, to, got off together, and we loved to fish for trout. So um, uh, we, he, 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 I told him, I had been doing all these different jobs, but I was I working for a catering company. It was killing my back. And he said, well, I can put you in as an extra and a background work for Bernie Mac. 
so it won't be as physically hard for you. You know, you can make your insurance too for your medical. So, you know, there's a stigma in town. If you do that kind of work, you're never going to make us an actor. Mm -hmm. But at that time, I, I didn't buy into that. I said, nah, I've got the talent. If I do it, I'll do it. And I was still in class, by the way. All these years, every week, I'm working with this group called the Sarah Fulton Group and going and putting up scenes and stuff. So uh, I was on Bernie Mac. This guy, Ken Quapis, came on to direct. I heard he was going to do the the, uh, the Office. I went on The Office with him because my little voice said, that's what you're going to do. Wow. Left, uh, and I just started getting bits on the, on the Bernie Mac, but I left anyway. And I was there for a couple of weeks on the show, and I saw all these talented kids, and I said, I've got to do something to get noticed. So I created the character uh, based on what would happen if I, as a guy from the grassroots and Rockwell, continued debauching and let's continue doing drugs and became illegal. All this did all this illegal stuff, you know. Uh -huh. I, I amped up the weirdness, shot it. <laughs> Shot about an hour's worth of stuff. Uh, ad libbed quite a bit of it too, but created, got it down to what I thought was the funniest stuff, and submitted it to them. And a, a few days later, uh, the, the um, line producer came up and he had it, and uh, I think Terry Weinberg had it, and Greg Daniels had the, the tape. Yeah, and and, uh, and he, he said, "My God, this is, you're really, really funny." So I said, "Boom!" We only shot six episodes that first season. Second season, right away. Uh, they throw me at this thing on my desk, the script, six and a half page scene with uh, Steve Carell, the Halloween episode. Yes. And that was it. I uh, I made my bones on that when it aired. Uh, on a Thursday, Friday morning, I was sitting at craft service, getting some coffee. I look up, and it's Krasinski and Rain Wilson walking up to me, two of my buddies who were, were so encouraging to me when I was on the show. And they gave me a big bear hug and whispered, my ear, you knocked it out of the park, buddy. And that was the scene in season two when Michael Scott tried to fire you, but you got him to fire someone else because you fought for your position. And you were dressed up like a vampire the entire time because it was the Halloween episode, which was hilarious. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> this is Our American Stories, and we're talking with Creed Bratton, who starred on NBC's hit television series, The Office. We're talking about his life, his musical career, and when we get back, we'll hear more about his nine years spent on the set of The Office. This song is by Creed Bratton. It's called The Rubber Tree. Keep it right here. This is Our American Stories. We'll be right back with more from Creed Bratton. Wind it up, bounce back, do the rubber tree. In Indonesia, there's a thousand snakes. That... <laughs> This is Our American Stories. I'm Jesse Edwards. And we've been talking with our guest, Creed Bratton, about his life, his successful career in music, and his time on NBC's hit television series, The Office. Uh, this music you're hearing now is actually from The Office on the Booze Cruise episode, where Creed is actually playing guitar, where he also talks about being a member of the Grassroots. Back in the 60s, I was with the Grassroots. We toured with uh, Janis Joplin, The Doors, cream. We had a lot of fun. And now I do quality assurance for a paper company. As you can imagine, uh, drugs played a part. We still do. I, uh, my work calls last about 90 seconds, and that's about as long as I can concentrate. 
Now, your character in the office is the crazy old guy who's open about how he likes stealing things. He makes fake IDs for teenagers and even forgets his own job title, which was quality assurance. What do you do here? Excuse me. What is wrong with this woman? She's asking about stuff that's nobody's business. What do I do? Really, what do I do here? I, mean, I should have written it down. Quah something. No, 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 but I'm getting close. There's also the scene where your coworkers complained about the way you smelled because you were sprouting mung beans in your desk. Okay, Ryan, you told Toby that Creed has a distinct old man smell. I know exactly what he's talking about. I sprout mung beans on a damp paper towel in my desk drawer. Very nutritious, but they smell like death. What was your favorite uh, Creed moment from The Office? Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> I always tell people, there's so many. You know, yeah. I, which, I've heard that which one's Pam, but somebody make it soup. The ones that put me on the the uh, the map. Yes, uh, that that got that got that, that people found. It. Even the writers said, "Well, this is hilarious." I didn't. I did a lot with a little, apparently. So, but the one I really love, I tell everybody, is the, I was doing a scene with John, and uh, I was asking for a pie. I was supposed to get a birthday. He said, "Well, you want a birthday cake?" He said, "I want a birthday pie." <laughs> and so we're doing the scene, and John says, uh, "Why don't we shoot it like a David Mamet play, real fast and boom, 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 boom." And we did, we did it. And that was John's idea. And we shot it close up. And uh, he said he was laughing one time because I was so intense, I got spittle coming out of my mouth. I hate devil's food. Well, I think Meredith's food. Screw it, Meredith. I don't think it's fair to let someone else pick the cake on my birthday. Everybody's birthday. Today is actually my birthday, and I want to pick the cake. What do you want? I want pie. I want peach pie. I want a birthday pie. I want a nice cobbler. Well, I'm going to talk to Angela, and we're going to see what we can do about a pie. I don't care who you talk to. Just make it happen. It'll be Angela. We'll tell her it's for Creed. She'll know what that means. <laughs> but as I see that, I saw that for Survivor Man. I saw that the other day somewhere, and I started laughing again because I think that found that very humorous. This is a <laughs> lot. Kids come up to me and sprout all the stuff all the time. Oh, I, I bet, yeah. Some of it too, you know. Yeah. After nine years on The Office, when the finale finally aired in 2013, I held it together pretty well until the final scene when everybody gathered around The Office for the very last time, and you started to play the guitar and sing a song called All the Faces, and I, I got to tell you, mm-hmm. I completely lost it. Uh, let's take a listen oh, to that for just good. a second. I saw a friend today, it had been a while And we forgot each other's names But it didn't matter cause deep inside The feeling still remained the same we talked of knowing one before you met And how you feel more than you see And other worlds that lie in spaces in between And angels you can see And all the faces that I know Have that same familiar glow I think I must have known them somewhere once before All the faces that I know Tell us about this song. When did you write it? I wrote that in 1970. Uh, I had been, uh, I had left the grassroots, late 69, I believe, something like that. I can't remember exactly where. 
but it's, people tell me different stories. I'm not sure. No one really knows when it left, <laughs> uh, except the lawyers, I think. <laughs> but anyway, I'm sitting out in Ramirez Canyon in Malibu. Uh, my uh, daughter, Ami, had to be late 69 because she had just been born. So um, uh, had to be at least in December, probably around Christmas time, I would think, in uh 1969. That's right. That makes sense. She's in her bassinet there. Uh, Joanna's in the cooking dinner, and I'm by sitting by the fire playing my guitar. And all of a sudden, Joanna goes, "That's beautiful. Who wrote that song?" And I said, "I think I just did." Wow. And I realized that at that time, I this was the first song that came in its entirety. Jesse, it came out the lyrics, the melody, the chords, and this is like a complicated little. It's simple. It seems simple, but it's a it's an intricate little pattern. It's all a, kind of like a James Taylor uh, kind of a pattern. Yeah. And uh, I realized that then that my good songs from then on have come that way. They just got they just come out of the ethers, and I don't have to think about them always to appear. And I've written a lot of songs like that. The ones I try too hard and think about and calculate, they're okay sometimes, but they're not. They're not like all the faces, and uh, yeah. And when I played that at the uh, at the table read for the uh, the Universal people, and you know, people were crying even at that time. <laughs> and the cast and everybody, the song now has went viral, and uh, and that is my hit. You know, that's I got sure I have lit for today and midnight confession stuff, but yeah. as far as the kids on Netflix know. When I play all the faces in a dry eye in the big place. Well, I, I can't hear so it without tearing one. up. I got to tell you, it's, it's a beautiful song. Oh, good. And I know you got to like go. People miserable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just before, I know you got to go, but really quickly, tell us about your tour coming up here. Uh, you got a bunch of shows coming up in Houston, San Antonio, Fort Worth, Greensboro. Uh, is that going to be just you, or is that your whole band? How's the show going? No, I just walk on stage now, and with my little Gibson I have, and my new little guitar, which I love to death, Gibson, yeah. and uh, I, I play my original songs. I do some grassroots songs. Of course, I'll do all the faces, and in between, I tell stories and uh, humorous anecdotes. You know, and people people seem to be enjoying the show because they keep asking me back to come back again. So, I hope they. Uh, this will be in Arkansas. Hope people find me there and come to come to the show. Well, you're a class act, sir, and I really appreciate your time with us today. And if anybody wants to find out more about that tour and catch Creed live on tour, you you can go to creedbratton.com and check that out. Uh, Thanks again, sir, for being with us, and thank you for all the laughs over the years. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. Before I forget, uh, let your people know, for my fans, I have a song out there called Faded Spats, which is the title song from my last album. It's a free download. And they should be able to go and find that song anywhere on online. As we're going out here, let's actually let's take a listen to that. And uh, as we uh, part ways, I, I thank you again for the interview, and uh, I hope we can uh, talk again soon and, and catch up on some more of your of your past and, and and your future. All right. Well, thank you, Jesse. I enjoyed it too, man. Thanks. Thank Bye. you so much, Greed. Take care. That was Creed Bratton with his amazing story about fame and success from the music scene of the 1960s to NBC's hit television series The Office, which first aired in 2005, lasting nine whole seasons. This is Our American Stories. I'm Jesse Edwards. If you'd like to hear this interview again or share it with your friends, you can get it at ouramericannetwork.org. More after this. Silent ride out The golden freckled coat is still
American stories and we tell all sorts of stories here on the show about music, art, business, history, but we especially love sharing stories that help us to develop lasting and healthy relationships from the start. One of our favorite guests is a medical doctor in North Carolina who does so much for so many and she does so much more than treat symptoms. Her patients affectionately call her Dr. Rose and we're so glad she's here to share some of her experience. Dr. Rosemary Fernandez-Stein has been a practicing pediatrician For 23 years and director of her own practice, the International Family Clinic in Burlington, North Carolina, for the past 16. They provide the best medical care and guidance to underserved families, and they now care for 5,000 children. She is also the author of Who Needs a Village? It's a Mom Thing, a book about how modern parenting fails to equip children with the necessary confidence and skills, and how parents, especially moms, can change all of that. Dr. Rose, welcome, and thanks, as always, for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. You bet. Talk to us about another kindergarten story this week, Dr. Rose. Of course. I I had, once upon a time, a little rambunctious, sweet boy who was into everything, and his name is Jerry. You could tell he was just high-energy boy. And not that this should matter, but Jerry is black, and his mom and dad have worked very hard at educating themselves, and now they're white-collar folks. Uh, Mom works at a laboratory, uh, and and she is a technical person, and Dad uh, works in, in an office as well. And both of them, like I've said, they've been very responsible, very good, civic, duty-minded people, and they have just been such a pleasure for me to be able to treat and to see uh, and to see him grow up. When he was six, uh, he was brought to me uh, because he was ending kindergarten, and the teacher sent home a note. And it said that, that Jerry wasn't doing well in school, and that now, instead of, of uh, meeting what he was supposed to uh, in, in kindergarten, that he was failing in all of, of the kindergarten areas. And that the teacher did not see a potential in Jerry, and therefore she had to uh, bring that up to the mom, and that perhaps he needed to repeat kindergarten. It was just that he was too immature to, to complete kindergarten at this point, uh, but that uh, she could just not see much potential in this young man. Well, mom comes in with this letter. Tears are coming down her face, and I realize to myself, I have an office full of children out there, but I have to stop everything so that I can talk to this mom and hopefully 
get this little boy's life back on track. And that's where I was many years ago. And I sat down and I looked over at Jerry and realized he has an ultimate potential and an ultimate outcome. And I don't know what that is, but I can see him being inquisitive and coming at me and, and being so affectionate, and he'd give me the hugest hugs whenever he saw me. And I still have pictures of Mr. Jerry when he was three, four, and five. And I said, there is no way that any teacher at five and six years old knows for sure that this kid has no potential. And I held on to Mom's hands, and I said, she's wrong. She's wrong. I know it because you guys are investing wholeheartedly in your boy. And I see a very inquisitive, I would say smart boy, because he talks, not, not that he's, he's saying every word correctly, but he talks like there's a lot going on in his mind, and he's paying attention, and he's learning every day. So I want to say that he's smart. But what I think your child needs is some extra structure and discipline, and he needs to understand mom and dad authority. And mom, here it is. You haven't asked me about this before, but you're a little bit on the lenient side, on the soft side with your little Jerry. And I think that it's time for you to allow for Jerry to grow up, to give him that structure, to give him that authority, and for him to understand that the buck stops with you. And then when he doesn't behave and he doesn't pay attention and he doesn't follow the rules, that there will be consequences. And you lay out what those consequences are because otherwise you're giving up tomorrow for today. And so we devised a plan so that he would understand how to sit and listen a little bit better and pay attention to his mama and to respect adults. And I said, I think, I think that is what he needs most of all because I think he's smart. And so I want to see him back periodically every month or two months just to make sure that he's keeping on track. And the mom would bring him back in every month or two months for probably about a year or a year and a half. And after that, the visits started to get more far apart and more far apart until I've been only seeing Jerry for about a year at a time at his annual checkups. So he came in just a few weeks ago, and he brings over something very important. He tells me, Dr. Rose, I'm an A honor roll student. And I'm thinking of going in, into AP classes. What do you say? Do you recommend me for AP classes? And I almost started crying. We remembered when he was doing so poorly and his mom was doing poorly. And we said, you made your mom a proud kid. What a wonderful job your mama has done with you. She worked hard and she brought somebody good to society. I said, this is worth all of my doing, all of this work at my practice. Yep. Parents do not believe what the teacher says when she says that your child would, will not amount to every, anything. Because most of the time, just about 99% of the time, they're going to be wrong. And so we keep on working and we understand that the Lord has a purpose with our kids. And we add structure and authority coupled with love. And that is what this mom did. 
Yep. And I think that when you said give up tomorrow for today, I think a lot of parents are making this really critical error, Dr. Rose. And what they need to do is give up today for tomorrow. That's right. And that's hard. It's hard. But what you said about being, well, lovingly uh, more, more disciplined and lovingly more authoritative, I think a lot of people, because they had experience on that other side of authority, Dr. Rose, that sort of brutal kind, and we've all experienced that too, where it's all authority and no love. And I think that there's a reaction to that often in a culture and also in an individual parent's case. That's right. And that's what we were teaching before, before the child got to school, was for the child to be able to submit himself or herself to authority. So the kid got to school, and not that they behaved perfectly. They were still five-year-olds and six-year-olds. But the teacher could say, class, let's stand up and get in line so that we can go to the bathroom. And they would. And she could say, children, it's time to put your heads down on your desk, and they would. And all of that has been left behind because we don't think that it's proper for us to have authority over our children. And what happens when nobody is in control is that then the children are not in control, and because of that, they're not able to learn. And so many of these children are not taught that. They're just just taught to play and to have fun and to enjoy their, their, their childhood. And there is time for that. That is a wonderful thing, but it can't be all of the things that we do. And so look at what you're doing. If when you give a discipline to your child, it doesn't hurt you, even more in a sense than it's hurting your child, it's not necessarily going to get the job done because it should hurt us to withdraw something that we wanted for our child to have or to send our child to bed uh, without dinner and having to go to bed early, uh, or having to go to bed for a week at 7.30 and, and not having an outing that was important. Oh, believe me, even as the mother of a teenager, it hurts me. And, and I don't have to tell my teenager that, because she doesn't need to understand that. She will have a knowledge of that herself when she grows up her children. But we know this, and we bear the pain of it. And that means that that child is growing up, and we as parents are growing up too. Indeed. If we're feeling that pain, we're growing up. Dr. Rose, thanks as always for all that you do. Oh, always a pleasure. Thank you for allowing me with my little little bit of emotion to share about Jerry. He's such, he, he is such a jewel to me, and I'm so pleased that at this point in time, He is doing well, and he wants to become a doctor. And, in fact, I gave him uh, a book. Uh, It's Ben Carson's book, Gifted Hands. And I I told him, I see Dr. Carson in you. I'd like you to read this. He started reading it the moment he took it out of my hands. And it was such a pleasure to see such potential in this young man. Well, that's that, that, that's what brings you to tears. Watching this, what was what everybody thought was a boy who couldn't amount to anything, uh, picking up a book like that, and you know, it's not going to surprise you, Doctor Rose, to find out he's a doctor too one day. This is our American stories, Doctor Rose's story, and these tremendous stories about parents and kids. As always, uh, Doctor Stein teaching parents how to be better parents.